I'm going to have to look that up. Everything, everywhere, all at once, which is probably how many of us feel right now. All the work, life, and other things that get in the way of gaming, of chatting about games, podcasting about games. This is also a movie that is now sitting at the top of the queue after our family finally finished streaming all the Games of Thrones episodes. Okay, we are a bit late to this. I've read all of the books probably years ago, before we even started watching. And now that my son is older, we made the decision to watch together. He's a big fantasy D&D fan, so it was nice to do this as a family. Also nice that the streaming options for the series, now that it's concluded, are a bit more affordable than perhaps HBO was years ago. But back to the everything and everywhere, I know I'm not the only one, but It's made me wonder why I keep this going, and by this I mean the pod. It's not going very much, I admit. I've found it difficult to carve out time to think and plan and record, and the default when I go wandering, say on a walk with the pup, is always much easier to listen to another pod than to record my thoughts, as others have done. Podcasts were the big revelation for me when I started to get back into gaming years ago. Living in Hawaii, I had already been listening to some pods over the years, but none about gaming. And when I first discovered that RPGs were still around, blogs were one of the main entry points. And it was easy to listen to others talk and play and review to both help me figure out what was happening what had happened in the RPG world, the history, and get a bit of a fix until I started playing, uh, both there and now as I've moved on. So starting these pods helped me connect indirectly to the community, but also to so many others in the space, you know, the anchor community and beyond that, which in turn has led me to be able to game online with folks and have discussions and friendships. So I have been very hesitant to formally end this and cancel all future episodes and empty the lecture hall. It's pretty empty right now, Uh, even if it's weeks or months in between episodes. And getting back to the lecture hall, most of all for my one fan with the multiple personalities, probably ended up here by mistake after the end of the Dead Game Society. Perhaps she was looking for some coffee, maybe better Wi-Fi, but she's still here, and so I do feel a bit of an obligation, or rather a duty, to keep going. So we made it to October, which is spring down here in the Queensland and the rest of Australia. Autumn, where I grew up in North America, and for many, it meant baseball playoffs. But in the potosphere, it is OSR-tober, or old-school-tober, I'm not sure. Anyway, a month to reflect on the OSR, and it's prompted a range of nice podcasts to do just that, 
providing some very nice interviews with creators, some revisits and reviews of older content, and perhaps it's prompted some of us to do a bit more soul searching, taking a moment to go a bit deeper. Che Webster has gone into this recently on his podcast, Roleplay Rescue, and his discussion on where he fits relative to the OSR community has prompted some deep thinking of my own. And regardless of what the acronym itself represents or implies, the term OSR, or, or more precisely the label of old school role playing, does evoke certain assumptions about style of play, perhaps some mechanics and genres for many, and it does for me. So my discussions and points here are going to be highly personal. And the biggest thing, perhaps the, the first and foremost thing it conjures for me, is nostalgia. This is what it felt like. When I say this, the, the sense of when you say OSR old school, that's what it felt like when I first found D&D, or how I imagined it felt. So when I first returned to playing several years ago, the simple research that I did just on games and where D&D was quickly led me to Matt Finch's primer on old school gaming. And I imagine most who are listening are familiar with it. And in parallel with that, many blogs and forums and in turn podcasts that aim to look at gaming with similar perspectives. And for me, many of these were a chance to recapture some of that nostalgia, but also to try and remember for myself the, I guess, collection of mostly TSR role-playing games. So the primer and the, the start and evolution, I guess, of the retro clone production, and maybe the overall OSR movement seemed to emerge towards the end of the Wizards of the Coast era of the third or 3.5 edition D&D, right when they had shifted to fourth edition. And perhaps all of the changes, maybe even starting from Wizards, taking D&D, creating third edition, iterating, and then eventually fourth, helped create the OSR. Uh, It's not really my intention to provide a detailed history on the origins, there are plenty of others that have talked about this and you know what caused it, what it wanted to evoke, but I really took a step back, and again, mainly after hearing Che and, and a few others, and just tried to think about what it really means to me. And this is where I had a bit of confusion about what it really was in terms of the community and the specific games and the styles. So going back to Matt's primer, I looked at the four Zen moments he talked about, and I remember in reading this, all four of them rang true when I started playing D&D, or again, what I imagined. So just to quickly review, he emphasized the four points of rulings, not rules, heroic, but not superhero, forget game balance, player skill, not character abilities. When I started playing, and again, as as much as I can remember, and the few times I played at university, especially with unfamiliar groups, I don't know that all of these aspects were apparent. And this is the 80s and into the 90s, but we're mainly talking about BX D&D, 
and advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Now, rulings, not rules, I think is the most important, regardless of game, and that was probably the most prevalent. My view when running or playing in a game is that the main objectives of playing are to have that collaborative game experience. My words are that this includes the creation of a story by the group, but it's developed and enhanced through gameplay. And the core objective, no matter what else, at least to me, since it is a game and there are other things, but I enter it to have fun. You know, it's, it's a pastime, it's a hobby. And most people I played RPGs with have not been rules lawyers per se. There are some. So in the games that I've played and the ones I play now, I've found the best sessions are not interrupted by checking the rule book every other turn, doing all the flipping and turning, but rather going with the group and essentially with the DM making rulings. To be fair, most of the games that I've read and played, and this includes most of the older ones that I can recall, do emphasize this point for all of the complexity of rules, even in the AD&D books. A core principle is that the DM or the GM can alter it as they see fit for the good of the game, the good of the group. This is something that to me really distinguishes the genre itself, the RPGs, this collaborative game format from a lot of other games. That includes both collaborative board games where there are certain rules to pit the group or the, the team against some sort of game intelligence to see if they can beat the game, but definitely from competitive games and particularly war games where a lot of this sprung out of. Even more so for all those complex war games that some of us remember with the big paper mats and all of those cardboard chits. So for me, there's nothing but agreement with this first point. But the confusion arises when I actually go and revisit AD&D, the first edition, which I've done recently. And even editions after this, I'd even put BX in there to some extent, because there are rules, some of them appearing to be rather strict, and limits. Playing any of these systems rules as written runs counter to emphasizing the rulings, obviously. And to be fair, I suspect most people do not run these rules as written. We certainly did not when I was younger. Although there was the fear we weren't playing the game right, particularly when we got to AD&D. And now we were younger. There was not the World Wide Web and internet as we know it. Although there were a few times I remember dialing up on the modem at the school library and placing it in the cradle, war game style. But getting back to the, the topic, it's strange that we had a, a social pressure or perceived pressure when we were younger, that in learning to play this, we were very concerned about playing it right. And I think part of that worry was that I thought that I'd eventually play with more experienced players and could get laughed off the table because I would not be able to interpret the rules and use all the right tables correctly and remember to apply weapon speed versus AC or whatever the heck it is. But it's, it's strange thinking about this now, especially thinking about this in the context of old school. And it definitely did come up. And I remember some games, not of getting criticized per se, but I remember that as much as we hold this tenet to be true, 
there were a few games where you may call it rules lawyers or you may just call it selective rules enforcement. Not necessarily arguing about the rule, but worrying that we had to have it enforced or a GM kind of insisting on it a certain way. A lot of what this is, and this is more of a side note, this is strange that <laughs> this pressure and this fear, and especially relative to the game, kind of conjures up now an idea to me of geeks bullying other geeks, that you had to show that you were geeky enough to play and and use that as a way to to bully others. But yeah, it's a, it's a little bizarre. So going back to the main point, some of the most revered old school games still have plenty of rules that limit your actions, your choices, your adding confusion. And to be fair, some of these rules make for some spirited debates between editions. You know, the idea in BX of having a bit of a simpler system of having the uh, your class is, is really your species as well. If you're an elf, you're an elf. If you're a dwarf, you're a dwarf. You're not an elven fighter. And some people prefer that versus AD&D. But hidden within both of those are limits that if you read the rules as written or play with a certain group could get pretty severely enforced. And you'd actually wonder why. Because again, it is a fantasy game. So to me, there, there's nothing inherently wrong with this. It does present paradoxes. But that may be why it, it leads me to some confusion about what the OSR is. Is it really about the mindset? And if so, is that a mindset and, and a way of playing that was present with these games? Was it because of the game groups rather than the rules? I'm, I'm looking back and I'm starting to see these rule sets as, in turn, each of the best ways that the author or the game group, in this sense, that maybe helped encourage the authors to codify the new type of game. You know, back to the original and, and basic and AD&D, a lot of these books were a way to add structure to the game and their rules and tables to really help enable and influence the experience that many were looking for. I can only imagine that if you came to this from Wargaming, you probably needed some of these rules to help you differentiate what was different about this game. Why was it new? And at the same time, it's inevitable that after a few iterations or a few years, there are bound to be modifications. Some add complexity, some just address a different aspect that may have emerged during gameplay, codifying better house rules over others. Also, they may have just been there to keep things interesting. If you're kind of inventing a whole new game or game style, and I don't know that they saw it this way, even going back to some of the roots, having, say, a set of classes as your core set, your fighter, cleric, thief, and magic user, it might work for a while, but for some people, especially if they've been playing a lot, definitely a lot more than I ever played, uh, some of them may have started to ask, what other options they could imagine or create. You know, what could they experiment with? And then once you get to that point, how do you provide some guidelines, some standards, some minimum set of rules to share with other groups? And it iterates from there. It does seem that there was a collaborative spirit in the early days. As a side note, and we're starting to get into probably some territory with the history and kind of the evolution that are better explored through a lot of 
John Peterson's books. I just finished listening to The Game Wizards, and it was incredible. And I've got a lot to say about that, so that might have to be a separate episode. One big takeaway was I am actually astounded that D&D made it as far as it did. And in the book, it's only covered really up to the end of Gary's turn at TSR, not into the Watts here and beyond. But it almost seems more like luck and and the gaming groups that it clicked with and that carried on with it more than anything else. But that's beside the point. <laughs> so when I started playing, I was not even a teenager. And I did play as a teen, as a university student. But trying to remember now what it means to be old school and thinking that I was really a kid playing these, the earliest games that I played and loved were really an honest combination of make-believe and then having some rules to randomize the story and the experience. It's not dissimilar to playing cops and robbers or running around the woods inventing games and quests or whatever you will when we're kids, trying to find something else to do. Uh, You know, I'd say besides playing some organized sports, but I even remember having rules for organized sports that maybe were a little bit different. We would have no man's land if any of you remember where <laughs> where that was when we played pickup baseball or softball even and we didn't have enough to have complete teams in each side we had no man's land if you hit the ball in a certain area of outfield you were out so i all kinds of little things that we would make up or at least adapt to make the game playable to make the experience better Getting back to the RPGs, the the idea of playing make-believe, I sometimes think this first part is what a lot of gamers started with and maybe lost. And I know others have talked at length about this. And this is something that's really at the heart of play. And maybe why it's difficult once you get to be, I wouldn't even say an adult, as you get older, whether it's society pressures, just real-life demands really eats away at this. But that is really critical. And in some ways the old school or OSR is an attempt to, I don't want to say codify, but maybe help keep that part alive. That some of the tenants that Matt laid out and others have are really to help both rekindle and then maintain that that experience. So thinking now with respect to D&D, and this can apply to other games, I have started to look at a lot of these edition changes, then the supplements and spin-offs, just as one long evolution. And, and maybe it's better not as evolution, but to talk about it as a large experiment. Because I, I know we can have a lot of arguments on the stages of evolution, and does that mean that the product now is better than when it started? So experiment may be better, because I think each step along the way were attempts to codify certain rules that maybe early groups loved, changing some that made no sense, adding some to maybe prevent and and even stop some current heated table debates, adding in some strange ideas, you know, being a bit innovative and trying other things. Even with 5th edition, I, I think there's some elements that are there. One to, I don't want to say push the boundary, but to try some new things. But some elements to capture 
aspects of that old school gaming that may have been lost or overlooked in addition since BX. And I don't think I'm the only one. So not saying that it is an old school game, but there are parts in there that to me evoke more of that feeling. And I have a feeling that that is what led to putting them in. So it's not true for everything, not with fifth edition, not with a lot of the editions. And there's something that I've really ignored so far in thinking about this. And it's, it's a bit separate from talking about the OSR and community in the sense of it, but it's also a major reason that led to the creation of the OSR. And that's the economic side. So the RP economics again, that we've talked about with my one fan, with most publishers and definitely the big ones, it, it, to me, it seems that it's hard to avoid this aspect when creating, especially with respect to all the addition changes and supplements, and especially if you're a large company. And to be fair, there really aren't any companies that I can think of without my head that can come close to the size of Watsi as it's part of Hasbro. So for better or worse, this is a product that's in the hands of a large company. And all of the changes that Watsi made with the brand and then the rule set from third through fifth edition is essentially a culmination of their best calculated effort to make money, to expand market share, to rebuild the brand, to bring back old gamers, to expand into new areas. So fifth edition in some ways can be seen as a bit of a correction and enhancement of the core principles of old school D&D and as something maybe for a new audience, something that can appeal to a new generation of gamers and maybe some older gamers that want to see a strong D&D again. But really, just looking at it that way, in order to get to this point, to get to this great resurgence of D&D that we're seeing, they had to fail a bit with all the issues they experienced, both from kind of the era of third edition and then the changes to fourth, the reaction thereof, and making a decision to go both back to something but but forward with, with a new version. And during this, I suppose, failure or learning experience, all of this helped to launch so many other RPG publishers, game systems, content creators, all the retro clones and then small publishers that provided these, you know, many that started as free and have free versions, but actually led to something viable for the market. Things could look a lot different if Watsi just kept going with third edition or fourth edition or just reprinted the old BX or AD&D, maybe slapped a new date on it, had some corrections. This is where it gets hard. I can't imagine. But again, as a big company, as Hasbro, you know, Watsi under Hasbro, I don't know if any of these options are something they would do. I don't know if it was at the point where it was, even in the game sphere or another product, established enough and doing well enough that it could just either maintain or revert to a previous edition, if you will. And so they did this experimentation. They did these experiments with the editions in fifth. And it could also be why now there are signs that they're leaning more and more into digital and doubling down on online play and experience for the next iteration. It's just part of where they predict the money and players will be. But all of this opened the door 
to the OSR, to gamers like us that came back, to the gamers that never left, bringing back older rule sets, spreading knowledge of these rule sets to those that never saw them, iterating on these rule sets, developing new products. To close out the discussion, I'll go back to the other Zen moments Matt identified. And again, I thought these rang true when I first read the primer. I'm not so sure anymore. And in fact, I have a bit of doubt because some of these weren't maybe as present in the old school, I forgot my quotations, old school games that I played. But again, these are my experiences and they probably are also shaped by what I really prefer to play. So talked about heroic, but not superhero. And I know this rings true for many of my D&D games. So I think in terms of the genre, or if you want to call D&D or fantasy a genre, I learned, perhaps as many did, you built an ordinary character that tried to survive something like the Caves of Chaos, you gained experience, you got better, and maybe then you became the hero. You tried to harness magic. You were, you were intrinsically weak as a magic user. You were decently strong as a fighter, but you knew you couldn't defeat much more than maybe a cobalt <laughs> by yourself. So these are the games I learned to play. It's not every game. So I do remember it being a key element of D&D. &D, and in fact, a lot of the games I like to play, mainly DCC, start with this as a core component. And I think that's fine. But I know that that's not present in everything. And even in the old school, we had many games where we played maybe supercharged heroes. We <laughs> purposely tried to make higher level characters. Mainly, I wouldn't say to exclusively be superheroes or, or, or play superheroes, but I do remember part of it being that you had to be that to take on certain challenges. And to us, that just seemed to make sense. But again, I, I do think this is a key element of many of the games of the genre, how it started out. One of the other ones, forget game balance. So again, in games I play now, I do like this aspect. As a DM, I want challenges to be challenges. Not everything has to be you know, an unbalanced encounter for the players, but I do like situations where they have to think hard, where they may have to retreat, where they may have to change their tactics, where direct engagement, direct fighting may not be the best way to do things. They may need to use um, something else in terms of whether it's another resource, another idea, some deception. And above all, I like the idea, both as a player and as a GM, of getting into an encounter and not really knowing what you're facing, that unknown sense of what the monster is. It could be more powerful than you. You can't make assumptions. And then factor this into your decision-making. I don't know that there was even a conscious thought of this before, and maybe that's the point. So maybe this is something that's come up you know, in the recent decades, you know, maybe in the era of a lot more video game RPGs, and, and I mean a lot more, obviously, as we had Adventure and Zork and whatever was on the Play-Doh system before we had MUDs. So maybe this is just something in, in retrospect we recognize, but I, I would say we didn't really have a concept of this. You just ran into challenges at some point that were going to be challenges that could get you killed, 
or that you may not be able to solve on the first go. The last aspect gave me perhaps the most doubt, or I'd say caused me to do the most deep thinking. Player skill, not character abilities. So if I read this as a straightforward tenet, I might interpret it as this is asking players to think and describe what they want to do rather than to approach, let's say, a dungeon in a purely mechanical way, looking at clearing a room by entering, rolling, let's say, perception check, some other check, looking on the skills list they have on the sheet, acting accordingly, and then going on to the next one. And maybe a better way to say this is playing your sheet and not the character. So if this is what we're talking about, I totally agree. I think the bigger disconnect for me is when I've heard this in discussion, it goes a little beyond that in the sense that it's almost either assuming or forcing the player to have a certain level of skill for how they're playing to, to making them good at D&D, if that makes any sense, setting a prerequisite that you need to know how a certain character would do things. And I can understand this from a certain sense that by playing long enough in the genre and with classes and class abilities you would, but I think it's a very fine line before you cross over into understanding the mechanical features of your class, maybe the tactical aspects. So this is something that Che discussed and I was applauding in agreement. And here's the point. Obviously not all of us are actual fighters, thieves, wizards. We may have personalities that are. So I always wonder that if we're trying to penalize players for not bringing some kind of you know, personal skill that's related to these core classes to the table, it gets a bit much. And I'm probably reading too much into this, but to me, what this tenet or the, the moment could be is really to emphasize the role, R-O-L-E play, over the role, R-O-L-L. And more specifically, role play over looking for the skill check and executing it for every aspect of the game. And a lot of these detailed skill checks, especially the charts in third edition, fifth edition, lots of other games where you have checks and abilities for everything, may be part of what people are rebelling against, that by having it too formulaic, if that makes sense, really subtly encourages players to do that. So what I would say is is maybe interpret this, and I'll give some examples, as an emphasis on the role play. And I've watched some really good DMs do this, and I've really tried to then emulate it in future games. And they're embracing this tenant really just by asking players for more description. Just asking them to describe what they want to do, what they're going to attempt, not to get them in trouble or trip them up or set a trap, but really to help them embrace the role play. And this is really, again, 5e related, but in some games, and I've been in groups with players that walk into rooms and they'll do what I described earlier, list the checks they would like to make, and probably because that's maybe how they learn to play the game for no other reason. Plus, they also have this big list of skills, and <laughs> I ask myself the same thing on some of these sheets. I must have to do something with all these. But 
what I've heard the DM do is in those cases just reply by saying, oh, I don't really know what a perception check or what that check is. Why don't you tell me what you want to do or where you're looking? It really does not take that much. And I've watched the light bulb go on for players that getting to this point, you know, even if they're not quite the experienced thief, you know, or whatever class their character is, watch them just start to imagine. You know, if they're checking for traps, they'll they'll try to describe things or, okay, when I look at the door, maybe I'm trying to see where light is coming through in some places but not others, or there's no light, or there's dust in some places and not others. And again, doesn't matter how skilled mechanically they are or how much they've thieved, but putting them in a situation where, again, it's, it's, it's pretending, coming up with ideas. And much of this leads to a role in many games anyway. And the specifics may not matter as much. It just gets the player in the group thinking and more into role play. I remember a lot of sessions in Singapore, and I might have mentioned this before, that with the groups, there seemed to be a lot more effort in planning a certain way to approach encounters or you know, when they came across, I'll use the generic term monsters, but it, it could be anything, just any others that they have to interact with. And I noticed that a lot more options were on the table beyond just pure conflict. And again, some of these could be ridiculous. You know, it's almost like a brainstorming. Some of them are unbelievably inspirational. No pun intended, but (laughs) would result in inspiration if you're playing in 5e or a game that has that mechanic. And I think that's what really leads to making a session great. And also, as we said before, even though this may lead to a role, it doesn't have to, and it, it gets the group and the players into the game and keeps them away from just executing, you know, a mechanical procedure or a list of checks. So perhaps there is my OSR-tober contribution. Not really sure that it did what I thought it would. I'm not really sure if this is what you signed up for, but thankfully... For my one fan, the coffee here in the lecture hall is good, and she's still here. And it could also be that the coffee's free in the lecture hall, and that's why they're still here. But anyway, so for me, where do I go from here? Well, one thing I've sensed is there's been a bit of a disturbance in the potosphere, rather a, a silence, and lo and behold, in searching through my podcast feeds, I've realized that two of my favorite podcasts over the last few years have gone stagnant. Two stalwarts of the DCC community, the twin pillars of Spellburn and Glowburn, have been quiet. And I'm assuming the reasons for this, and they're good reasons. It's the everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm pretty sure that the host's at least those that have been writing for Goodman Games, they have a mountain of content to finish for Dying Earth, for all the other products. I know the guys at Glowburn are busy with everything else they do. And in addition to the podcast, have been doing streams and running games and conventions, etc. So this is all understandable. 
And I think this is maybe why they need us now more than ever to put out some some good DCC and MCC content into the potosphere. They need us to help because I'm not sure it's really good for us to live without DCC and MCC content in our podcasts, at least for me and my one fan. So perhaps we'll need to start and address that with the next episode. So until then, hope everyone's doing well, staying healthy, and until next time, cheers. Cheers.